Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host of The Daily Journal. We welcome you again to this one-hour broadcast of our Daily Journal podcast. Today, as part of a review of Supreme Court decisions of this term, we will be talking about one of the most interesting in its implications, cases that have been decided by the court. Decided on July 6th, uh, in its bar versus the American Association of Political Consultants. It, as a matter of fact, involves the law concerning robocalls. As a matter of doctrine, it involves a lot more under the First Amendment and other doctrine that could implicate other cases. We're delighted to have as our guest to do, discuss this today, Stephen Newman, who's a partner at Struck and Struck and Levan with widespread experience in dealing with First Amendment issues, consumer regulation issues, class actions, consumer privacy, consumer fraud, and a broad range of, of complex uh, litigation. Before his practice, he was a law clerk uh, to Judge Lane on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Howard. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to talk about this uh, very interesting uh, opinion, and I'm um, happy to be on the show. Well, let's, let me just take a minute to, to give a one-sentence summary so we'll know where we're going when we talk about the opinions. Uh, this case arose out of the Cons uh, Telephone Consumer Privacy Act of 1991, which was amended in 2015. The original act, essentially the sections we're concerned about, barred automatic dialing, we call automatic dialing systems, we'll talk more about that, uh, robocalls to cell phones. In 2015, Congress amended the act to exclude robocalls to collect government debt. Government debt would include guaranteed mortgages, student loans, or anyone collecting them. The American Association of Political Consultants filed a lawsuit. They were the plaintiff uh, against the Attorney General uh, uh, and others to declare the entire Telephone Consumer Privacy Act unconstitutional on the ground that by exempting government, uh, government calls to collect government debt, calls for government debt, it had enabled content-based restrictions. Therefore, there was a First Amendment violation and the entire statute, Telephone Consumer Privacy Act, Protection Act rather, should be held unconstitutional. The net result was, the net result of the case is that the validity of the act has been upheld through a series of doctrinal analysis that we will discuss. And so essentially the plaintiffs lost, the association lost, but how we got there is the story of the case and its importance. Stephen, having said that, tell us more about this, how this began, how it came about, and what the plurality, the initial opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, the plurality opinion, how it handled the outcome. Uh, sure. And as you mentioned, this really is a great window to how the justices are thinking about many important issues, even though the actual legal outcome doesn't seem that controversial or even all that interesting. The effect of the ruling is that Congress is still allowed to regulate robocalling, but Congress is not allowed to create a special exemption for a collection of government-backed debt the same rules have to apply to everybody. There's no special exemptions from the law. Uh, but behind that very simple conclusion, same rules apply to everybody, um, we see all sorts of different approaches to the First Amendment, 
regulation of business activity, how to treat commercial speech, and what should the courts do when a law is mostly okay, but it's partially unconstitutional? I mean, this opinion with multiple justices expressing their views on multiple subjects is the kind of stuff that law professors absolutely love, uh, but makes lawyers tear their hair out when they try to explain the outcome to their clients. And it leaves regular people scratching their heads and saying, why, why are these Supreme Court rulings so long and so complicated? Well, we're going to find out. So let's start with the first question. The American Association plaintiff said, look, you've now exempted federal debt collection. So you've made a content-based restriction. And therefore, there's a violation of the First Amendment here. How did Justice Kavanaugh, in the plurality opinion, deal with that issue? Well, Justice Kavanaugh, um, he applied um, traditional First Amendment analysis of content-based restrictions. And you know, there's a distinction in First Amendment jurisprudence between laws that regulate only the time, place, and manner of speech and laws that regulate the, the content. And there's also a discussion of you know, if the law regulates both the content and urges a particular viewpoint, you know, that can be a different way of looking at it. But what Justice Kavanaugh found is that all content-based restrictions need to be treated the same and that they need to be subject to what's called strict scrutiny. And a lot of the case law says that uh, strict scrutiny means uh, strict on paper, but fatal in fact. Very, very difficult for a government restriction to survive strict scrutiny because the government needs to prove, number one, is there a compelling government interest? Number two, is the restriction on speech narrowly tailored to serve that governmental interest? And number three, is the government using the least restrictive means to attain that goal? Let me um, ask you, let, let me ask you before you go further, I know we wanna go further, but I want to highlight, if I can, and, and emphasize and ask you if it's true, that the significance, one of the major bits of significance of this opinion and of this case is the application of the First Amendment to ordinary commercial speech, because the first we're dealing with robocalls here. We're dealing with debt collection. Why wasn't this just commercial speech, which by and large, a point made by Justice Breyer in his dissent, which by and large is subject to only to less scrutiny and is largely exempt from the kind of First Amendment restrictions that applies to non-commercial speech. That's what the district court held. Why didn't that just end the case right here? Right. And you would think it, it would. And, and given the case law that had been developing prior to this case, you would think that would be the outcome. Um, and as you pointed out, Justice Breyer, in his opinion, was joined by Justices Ginsburg and and Kagan, and also Justice Sotomayor in terms of the method of analysis, um, they thought this is just technology regulation. It, it's really regulating business activity that only intermediate scrutiny would apply. And that um, there, you know, there's content-based restrictions that affect political things, and there's content-based restrictions that affect business matters. And Justice Breyer did point out there's plenty of government regulations of what's set on uh, drug labels, securities forms, tax statements, but the, but the majority of the court, as, as expressly stated by Justice Kavanaugh in his plurality opinion, which is joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch and Thomas agreed with the conclusion, 
um, they would apply very broad First Amendment protection to commercial speech. In their view, content-based is content-based, and it doesn't really matter uh, whether the content pertains to business activity or not. There is no uh, special discrimination uh, against uh, businesses when they're when they're speaking. Uh, commercial messages are are important under the First Amendment. And one thing that's worth noting in Justice Kavanaugh's opinion is he reaffirmed uh, some case law from several years ago um, pertaining to communication of data, like not even something that people would not normally even think of as speech, but just uh, electronic data. Um, and he and he affirmed an opinion um, called uh, IMS versus Sorrell um, that made it that made it easier for drug companies to encourage doctors to prescribe uh, the medication they manufacture. Uh, the access to data was important to the businesses uh, getting its message out. And so you, you do see from the uh, more conservative-leaning justices on the court a desire to give full protection to commercial speech, and that could lead the way to potential challenges to other uh, regulations of commercial activity that have a heavy speech component. Now, it's worth pointing out that in their uh, separate opinion, uh, Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Thomas, he didn't really talk a lot about the commercial speech issue. He was more focused on the political consultant speech and that the law seemed to discriminate against political speech in favor of government debt collection. So it's not entirely clear where Justice Gorsuch would go in a future case involving commercial speech regulation. So this is an area where I think it's really important to monitor what's happening at the court and where uh, a change in composition of the court could wind up having a significant effect on the First Amendment jurisprudence. Yeah, where Breyer was going, Justice Breyer's going is important here. It was summed up the issue summed up in terms of political speech by Justice Kavanaugh in a brief uh, couple of sentences where Justice Kavanaugh wrote a robocall that says, quote, please pay your government debt, quote, is legal under, under the statute. A robocall that says, quote, please donate to our political campaign, close quote, is illegal. And he made the clear distinction there. But suppose it was broadly interpreted. That's why this becomes so interesting. If, in fact, strict scrutiny is applied to content-based restrictions, as in this case, which apparently is purely commercial speech, that, I take it, would give, would lessen the ability of, of the government uh, to deal with controlling uh, commercial speech or private parties in litigation uh, to make arguments. Essentially, it permits a broader freedom for people in commercial. Isn't that the way it would work? A broader freedom of people in commercial settings to say things that otherwise uh, might be uh, uh, might be subject to regulation or liability. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, and you know things get uh, murkier as more and more in advertising uh, does take on more of a political tenor. Um, I, I think you know Nike has an ad campaign involving Colin Kaepernick. Um, Nike's goal is to sell shoes. Uh, but they're also making a bit of a political message. And there are all sorts of companies that um, 
either dip their toe into politics or jump all the way into the deep end of the pool, um, you know, either you know, expressing a political opinion um, because um, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, reflects the beliefs of the owners of the company or expressing a political opinion because they think it helps them reach a, per, a particular market. But also and things terms, get very, very murky. Yeah. But Go in, ahead. Not in terms of that, but uh, in terms of technology. I mean, this makes a distinction in terms of the use of the technology. But suppose, and if we talk about content-based restrictions, suppose uh, a, a public entity subject to the First Amendment protection were to say, you know, we are not going to play any video that uh, that is falsely created to represent a real person uh, that is not that real person. We know about the technology today. You can create videos and audios basically using the images and the sound and the voices from people. And it looks exactly like the real people. Uh, there's no way to tell from the digital authentication whether it's real or not real. And so someone says, no, if we determine this was digitally produced and it's false, we're not going to let you uh, uh, transmitted on our platform or by airtime. Is that a content-based restriction or is that a regulation of commercial speech? Well, I think that's a, a complicated question. I know that you know, currently under the Communications Decency Act, um, there's a lot of protection for internet platforms in terms of what they choose to publish or not publish. Um, but um, you know, one question created by this opinion is whether it is permissible to give a special exemption to one kind of speaker, for example, um, an internet platform, while not giving that same uh, protection to a, you know, a newspaper publisher um, you know, or a different kind of media outlet that's using traditional technology. Yeah, no, um, that does raise the so story. When, I'm sorry, please go ahead. No, no, and, and the president obviously has expressed concerns about that provision of the Communications Decency Act. So it would certainly be um, a surprising turn of events if this opinion were to uh, you know, give legs to a challenge to that, that statute, um, which is currently protecting um, Internet platforms. Because one of the oddities of this opinion, and um, Justice Gorsuch pointed this out, is usually when there's a first amendment vial when the court finds there's a first amendment violation the outcome is that more speech is protected you you level up the protection and that's what the political consultants were asking where they said wait a second you're giving them special protection to speak freely we want the same protection and the court said no we're going to solve the first amendment problem by treating everyone the same which means that this existing group of people that have protection they lose their protection so, you know, if that's the outcome, um, uh, you could have a bizarre world where uh, First Amendment challenges wind up in greater restrictions of speech. And that was... Um, and, and, yeah, and, and let me point something out about, about the political aspect of this. Um, I mean, one of the things that the political consultants wanted to do is, you know, not just use robo, robocalling technology to reach voters to ask for donations. They also wanted to use uh, this automatic, tech, automatic technology to reach voters for purposes of polling. Because in the 20, leading into the 2016 election, there were a lot of issues 
uh, with polling because it was very difficult to poll people who only have cell phones. And more and more people just don't have landlines at all. And so there's this tremendous blind spot in the polling system uh, that in part is created by the TCPA because you can't use a lot of electronic, a lot of automated technology to poll people who are reachable only by cell phone. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it is a, a strange result that this opinion may, may make, uh, may create a bit of a repeat of our last election in terms of getting useful information about what voters actually believe heading into the races in the fall. Yeah, and Justice Kavanaugh talks about, when he talks about when there's a conflict like this, you have equal, what he calls an equal treatment issue. Do you essentially go up or go down? I mean, but, Let's start it. I mean, if Congress were to pass a law that were to say, I mean, the plaintiffs here wanted to use this for what they called and was appropriately called political speech. But suppose Congress passed a law that's saying there can be no political speech uh, on cell phones. That certainly would not pass muster in the First Amendment, would it? Correct. That would be that would that would definitely be a content based restriction. And I can't think of any uh, compelling justification or even. Um, a substantial justification um, under the test proposed by uh, you know, Justice Breyer for that sort of regulation. And even and by the way, it's worth point. By the way, it's worth pointing out that Justice Sotomayor, who is perfectly fine with all sorts of regulation of commercial speech, she thought that this particular uh, regulation went too far and that it failed the intermediate scrutiny test. So she didn't see a very strong government interest in regulating uh, speech simply to make it easier to collect debt. Yeah. Well, so if you can go further, I mean, we talked about uh, barring political speech on cell phones, but also if instead of the Telephone uh, Consumer Protection Act, there had been a specific act that said robocalls are banned for political speech, that also would violate the First Amendment, uh, wouldn't it? It, it? Putting it that Correct. way. Correct, yes. But that's yes. the net effect of this case, given the way the court dealt with it, the net effect of this case is that since all communication by robocall is barred, political speech is barred. Well, well, yes, it's, it's no one can use this technology. And um, in the same way that no one can use the technology of you know, blasting a, a loudspeaker at 10,000 decibels outside someone's house at 3 a.m. Um, the court did talk a lot about how there is uh, a lot of public support for statutes of this kind that protect privacy, that uh, people do want some protection against uh, you know, being interrupted on their cell phones. So, so the court recognized that there is a justification uh, for the overall ban, uh, but the problem was to uh, pick and choose who would be subject to the ban uh, based on the content of the communication. And that came out of, this all resulted from, and we now have to should talk separately about the severability analysis, because here's the problem. Justice Kavanaugh says, uh, you know, once, the, once Congress amended uh, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act uh, to permit uh, collection of federal debts, uh, then it was clearly was a content-based restriction. So the issue that created the content-based restriction was the exemption for the government debt collection. So we find that unconstitutional. But then the question is, once you find that unconstitutional, 
what is the effect? Do you sever that out and hold the rest of the statute constitutional? Or do you say that because it's part of this statute, the entire statute is unconstitutional? That that was the severability issue that led to this, wasn't it? It, it was, and there's been a lot of activity there uh, in the Supreme Court this term as, as well. And the issue is, what do you do with a statute that's mostly constitutional, but has some fundamental flaws? There was a case also decided recently called SELA, S-E-I-L-A, versus the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, involving the structure of the agency. Uh, there was a regulated party challenging the structure of the agency on the grounds that the director uh, wasn't properly subject to presidential control because he could be uh, he or she could be removed only for cause. Uh, the Supreme Court agreed that the law did violate Article Two of the Constitution by restricting the president's powers, uh, but that the solution was simply to uh, delete the for cause provision of the statute because there's a, a presumption of trying to maintain statutes uh, in effect as much as possible and to solve any constitutional problem by um, eliminating the problematic portions. So that's what the court did here. The, the court found, seven justices found, that the TCPA is a popular statute that was attempting to address an issue that was important to a lot of citizens. Uh, also, what's critical is that the TCPA was on the books for 24 years without any hint of a constitutional problem. Uh, it was essentially viewed as a time, place, and manner restriction rather than uh, a content-based restriction. The same rules apply to everybody. Now there were some except now now there were some exceptions here and there for things like uh, like emergency calls, like uh, like an Amber Alert to your cell phone, uh, but you know that was not seen as problematic. So the only thing that changed after 24 years under this legislation was the addition of the government debt exception. And it would be strange to think that Congress could accidentally make a statute unconstitutional by making a very small exception to it. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh pointed out that this is an issue with the original Judiciary Act of 1789. Marbury versus Madison. Did not yeah. Exactly. That did not have an express severability provision. But when Marbury versus Madison declared a portion of the law unconstitutional uh, pertaining to Congress's attempt to expand the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, um, only the problematic section of the law was declared unconstitutional. The Supreme Court did not hold that the entire judiciary was unconstitutional. I mean, that would be crazy. Well, the entire judiciary um, the act. I mean, it's worth, pardon me, for, <laughs> right. but I think people may be a long way away from having read Marbury versus Madison. But yeah, right. What, what it turned on uh, was the grant of, of original jury in, in the Judiciary Act of 1789, when the Supreme Court was granted original jurisdiction, it was read as to giving original jurisdiction over the kind of writ of mandamus that was the basis of the lawsuit in the case. And uh, Chief Justice Marshall held that that original jurisdiction in the statute was outside the grant of original jurisdiction in Article Three of the Constitution, and therefore it was the holding that upheld judicial review and said, therefore, it is it is uh, essentially cannot cannot be valid because it's outside the the grant of power in the Constitution. But as you say, then the question was would be 
well, since that section of the Judiciary Act of 1789 was unconstitutional, do you essentially throw out the whole statute? And the answer was no. And that's what Kavanaugh goes back to uh, as, as, as the basis of the severability ruling. Uh, this is clearly a court, by the way, I think for those who argue in front of it, this is a court that is not only interested in original text, it's interested in history. Uh, and this just shows it again. The, the, the more... The more you go back to historical understandings, I think, it strengthens arguments in, uh, in front of this court, and that's just another example of it. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and here, and it was a little bit strange that there was so much discussion of severability, because in this statute, uh, there is a provision that specifically says that if any part of the statute is held to be invalid, that the remainder of the statute should be maintained as much as possible. So Congress specifically says, try to save the statute if there's a little bit of it that's unconstitutional. And what Justice Kavanaugh said is the tail on the unconstitutional provision does not wag the dog. The rest of the codified statute or the act is passed by Congress. Uh, he said constitutional litigation is not a game of gotcha against Congress where litigants can ride a discreet constitutional flaw in a statute to take down the whole otherwise constitutional statute. Um, what, what's interesting is that um, there's only there's only three justices um, who joined this analysis, even though there were seven justices that agreed that the unconstitutional provision should be severed. Uh, you only have detailed reasoning from Justice Kavanaugh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito, who joined Justice Kavanaugh's opinion. Justices Sotomayor, Breyer, Ginsburg, and Kagan, they simply said briefly they agreed with the result, but they did not uh, adopt the reasoning, nor did they provide any reasoning of their own. But um, I, I have to tell you, there's a tremendous amount of logic to Justice Gorsuch's dissent on this point. Um, he pointed out that the First Amendment really is special, and that when there is a violation of free speech, uh, the outcome really should be more speech for all, not less speech for all. And and Justice Gorsuch pointed out that not only did the political consultants lose in this case, but there were thousands and thousands of businesses who weren't even parties to the case who lose. Uh, all these debt collection firms who have been acting in reliance on the government debt exception, all of a sudden they have to completely revamp their businesses because of a case where they were not even parties. Uh, essentially, the Supreme Court just rewrote this statute against an entire industry in the exact opposite way that Congress intended. And what Justice Gorsuch said about this was, quote, it is highly unusual for judges to render unlawful conduct that Congress has explicitly made lawful, let alone to take such an extraordinary step without warning to those who've ordered their lives and livelihoods in reliance on the law and without affording those individuals any opportunity to be heard. I mean, I'm really remarkable. Well, one of the uh, now Justice Ka yeah, I mean it, it, it's really um, a remarkable observation. I thought yeah. one of the reasons this severability issue is being discussed so widely is because of its implications for the Obamacare case, uh, on which the Supreme Court has granted certiorari and will now be argued next term. Because, as you remember, Obamacare was upheld by the Supreme Court originally. Uh, after five just after the opinion of five justices saying that it could not be upheld under the Interstate Commerce Clause, 
it was upheld because the existence of the penalty for those who chose not to participate in, in the system constituted a tax, and therefore it could be upheld under the taxation clauses of the Constitution. Well, since that time, Congress has repealed the imposition of the penalty. And so, and since that was the basis of the constitutionality of the act, the argument is now made with the penalty gone, the act is unconstitutional. And that is purely a severability issue. And that's why the language of Justice Kavanaugh in this opinion is so important because Justice Kavanaugh wrote on the issue of severability. And remember, the, the court went out of its way to talk about the issue in this way. It could have ended the case on the severability clause in the Communications Act, as you've mentioned. But Justice Kavanaugh wrote, before severing a, pro a provision and leaving a remainder of the law intact, the court must determine that the remainder of the statute is, quote, capable of functioning independently, close quote, and thus would be, quote, fully operative as a law. The question is, does that language apply where there's an issue whether the statute without the clause that would be severed has no other basis for its constitutionality? Could the court use this language to say, we will sever out the penalty language and still uphold it? Uh, because nothing is said here about underlying constitutionality of the remaining statute. And that is why, is, is it not, Stephen, why so many people are commenting on the severability language of this opinion because of its implications for the Obamacare case? I, I think it's a very difficult opinion. Um, certainly, the court has announced a desire to save statutes whenever they can. Um, but there's a, a big difference between uh, clipping off the, the toenail of the government debt exception from an otherwise robust statute and um, seeing if the, the patient can be survive, can, can survive if the, the very heart of it is, uh, is cut out of it constitutionally, uh, which is its foundation in the taxing power as you pointed out. It definitely places Chief Justice Roberts in an extremely awkward position because he, he in a sense, threaded the needle by saying, well, um, I think this goes too far into the commerce power, but under the taxing power, Congress can do it. Um, and now it's, it's unclear whether Congress has actually renounced the taxing power or not. They didn't exactly repeal the tax. They set the amount of the tax to zero dollars. Um, and this comes after an attempt to repeal the statute in its entirety uh, failed uh, when Senator John McCain uh, voted against repeal. So it would be you know, very odd indeed for a Congress that refused to uh, repeal the statute um, under the uh, spotlight of, of the attention given to the repeal bill and the dramatic appearance by John McCain to cast his vote after, um, you know, he had been uh, receiving cancer treatment to then um, um, with a lot less attention, uh, pass a very small provision setting the tax to zero. Um, the language in Justice Kavanaugh's opinion about how um, constitutional analysis is not a game of gotcha, I think suggests that the statute would be upheld. But there are still a lot of questions. It's not clear 
it's not clear how the court could actually conduct the severability analysis. Would the court have to go through every single piece of the Affordable Care Act and decide which things Congress has done are within the commerce power and which are not? Uh, could the court find that the, the rule um, pertaining to maintaining coverage for pre-existing conditions, well, that's close enough to interstate commerce that that part survives, but a lot of other things don't. I mean, it creates uh, all sorts of complexity. Um, of course, there's another option yeah, it's, here. It's there's very another, difficult to, yeah. Another option, which horrifies people, but it's still an option because uh, two of the five votes, as I, as I remember, uh, that were part of the opinion that the Interstate Commerce Clause did not justify uh, Obamacare, the seats have changed. It's a different court. Uh, and so whether uh, leaving the remaining justices who did say it did not satisfy the Commerce Clause without changing their views, presumably the two new justices or even one of them, uh, by saying, look, in my view, this was uh, an Interstate Commerce Clause sufficient basis, could then uphold the statute on that basis. There was widespread criticism at the time of the opinion that said we can't uphold this under the Interstate Commerce Clause, as you remember, when it was read from the bench, a lot of reactions after reading that provision from the Chief Justice, people thought the act was going to be held unconstitutional, and he came in and saved it with the penalty. So this raises the stakes, as you've said, because of the difficulty of, of the analysis in dealing with separating out the, the clause, this raises the stakes enormously uh, for how the court doctrinally uh, deals with uh, Obamacare. It'll, we've had enough happen in the 2019 term, but the 2020 term is certainly going to be very interesting. What What is your bet? That's, that's absolutely right. Well, I mean, I would look a little bit to what happened in Bostock, which is the uh, Title VII case, yeah. in which the court um, um, admittedly rewrote the definition of the term um, because of sex, there shall be no discrimination because of sex or on the basis of sex. Um, to you know, adopt a you know, adopt the meaning that was um, in keeping with current thinking and overall constitutional principles of equality, and I think where the country has come on questions of of equality, but that absolutely was not what Congress uh, intended when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Um, so I see in this court um, a desire to bring legislation current to the times. And even though I, I don't recall which specific case it was from law school, but um, might have been uh, Justice Marshall who said the court is not a super legislature. We might have that right now. And so we might have our super legislature fixing uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, in spite of its constitutional problems and keeping much of it intact. Yeah, that's no. where uh, that's where my prediction is. Yeah, no, I oh, I think most people believe that this court will not find all of Obamacare unconstitutional. Uh, certainly, the, the chief justice's views in in the DACA case, for example, where he brought in elements of reliance. One of the reasons he said that the administration and its administrative actions had not properly considered reliance, and he, a huge part of his opinion in the DACA case talks about the reliance and reliance interests of those, not just the individuals covered by DACA, but the uh, 
but the families, the employers, the schools, everyone involved, the economy. And so I think the court is signaling and the chief justice is signaling that he's not a person uh, who likes to deliver major jolts to the system. Uh, and uh, so I think most people think they're not going to knock out all of Obamacare, but clearly these doctrinal considerations go over from area to area. So how it's dealt with uh, is going to be very significant for all of constitutional jurisprudence, I think. Um, yes, ab absolutely. Absolutely right. Now, there's one other factor here, that I, and at least one. There are more that, that considered as a result of this case. I mean, there were this, the exemption for debt collection of federal debts, which, as I said, included at the very least uh, government-guaranteed mortgages, student loans. And it wasn't only the government that, that couldn't make those calls. It was defined by the debt, not who the caller was. So the robocalls... Uh, could be made by debt collectors, part of the debt collection process. And there were a great many since 2015. Now, this, this case finds that provision uh, to have been unconstitutional uh, and, and brings essentially brings the prohibition. The net effect is it brings the prohibition on robocalls for government debt back within the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, within the CPA. So there has now been five years, about five years of activity by debt collectors in, I think, thousands or tens of thousands of cases would understate it, uh, seeking to collect these debts. Will there now be liability since the general presumption is that cases do not only have perspective but have retrospective effect as well? Will there now be massive liability or at least lawsuits against all those debt collectors who acted uh, under the statute as it was passed for federal debt collection. I, I think we will see attempts to impose liability. Justice Kavanaugh does attempt to address this issue in a footnote in the opinion. Uh, he wrote, no one should be penalized or held liable for making robocalls to collect government debt before the entry of final judgment by the district court on remand in this case or such date as the lower courts determine is appropriate. Uh, the problem, of course, is that statement was only, um, you know, by him and two other justices. So that's just, uh, that's just dicta. Um, I, it's, it, it is not, uh, 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 I, there's certainly arguments that it should control, but strictly speaking, it's not binding precedent. And, um, it's not clear what sort of uh, grace period the district courts might might uh, put in place uh, before saying, well, no, you need to be aware of this. You need to be aware the law has changed. And if you're if you're still using this technology, then um, then you're potentially liable. Um, the problem is a lot of these a lot of these uh, organizations that collect these debts have built their entire systems based around um, automatic dialing technology. And uh, for them to change their operations in a month or two months or even four months uh, could be very uh, costly for them. Um, they've invested, in some cases, millions and millions of dollars from the technology, which is now uh, potentially worthless to them because it's now non-compliant with the law. So I could see uh, litigation against the debt collection outfits. I could see... Um, the debt collection you know, firms that they've recently purchased equipment 
attempting to get out from under those sales. And so litigation over whether they have to go through with purchases of new equipment. I could see potential uh, insurance claims um, as to whether the the essential destruction of the business uh, by the Supreme Court ruling um, entitles them to coverage under the policy. Perhaps there might even be a takings claim against the federal government. Uh, the federal government induced them to buy all this very expensive equipment uh, to collect government debts uh, that ultimately, you know, collect debt that ultimately benefited the government. And now um, that investment has been rendered worthless by the Supreme Court. There may be a claim for compensation under the Fifth Amendment. So I could see a lot, um, a lot of chaos in the wake of this opinion. Well, you mentioned the district courts, but to the extent we're talking about liability, uh, there clearly could be cases filed under state statutes as well. Uh, in the state courts, which would raise an additional level of, of uh, problems, uh, both in terms of liability uh, and, and in terms of jurisdiction and where the cases go. So this is, a, uh, uh, this is an area of litigation uh, that will now explode in all the issues uh, you've, you've talked about. Uh, and numer- we know uh, that already lawyers are looking at filing these lawsuits, and so there will be lawsuits against the debt collectors. There will be lawsuits involving debt collector obligations. Uh, it's difficult to see how the people who made investments in their businesses that you've mentioned uh, uh, would, you know, would have it. You're right, there could be a takings claim. I think we're, we're talking about a large number, a large amount of litigation uh, coming, out of, coming, out of, coming out of this decision. And uh, that's one of the things that we will be following closely. Now, I do want to talk about, there are cases in the circuits, a a subsidiary issue here. There are cases in the circuits, and their circuits split, uh, that is also a very important uh, decision for the robo, we can broadly call the robocall industry, about what a robocall is, what is an automatic dialing system. What are the issues involved there between the circuits in terms of whether what's been done is a robocall within the Telephone Consumer Protection Act? Sure. And the issue really arises because the calling technology has changed a lot since the statute was first passed. As written, something is an automatic dialer if it has the, quote, capacity, quote, to store and generate numbers either at random or sequentially. And under a completely literal reading of the statute, it's a violation to make an unconsented call to someone's cell phone with such a system, um, even if the system is not being used at that moment in that fashion. For example, it's possible to download software to your iPhone to uh, make it into a, a robocall device. Um, so there's an argument to be made that because your phone has the latent capacity to be turned into a robocaller, um, every phone call you make with your iPhone to another cell phone uh, is a TCPA violation unless you have uh, prior consent. So if your kid gets lost in the mall, and another parent finds your kid and uses his iPhone to call your iPhone and say, hey, I found your kid, 
that other parent has violated the TCPA because you, this person is a stranger to you. And he made a call to your device with another device with latent uh, robocalling capacity. So the second and the ninth circuits take a very, very broad view of both the capacity question as well as the question of the basic definition. Um, and as they interpret this, the statute, any system that can be used to launch mass numbers of calls to any stored list of numbers uh, is an auto dialer. The Third Circuit, Seventh Circuit, and Eleventh Circuit, they take a much more narrow view focused on the specific language used in the statute. They focus on whether the device is actually being used to launch an indiscriminate number of calls. Uh, they pointed out that the statute focuses on calling numbers at random or in sequential order. So, for example, if you're programming your system to call everyone within the 818 area code and try to sell them you know, a new muffler on their car, um, you know, that would be a violation because you're calling all the 818 numbers in order. But if you have a stored list of people who you formerly did business with, um, even if they never specifically consented to the marketing message, um, you know, simply calling the stored list using automatic technology would not make the call a robocall in these circuits view because it's not indiscriminate calling, it's not random calling, and it's not calling a list of numbers in, you know, simply in numerical order. So it's, it's a really important issue because the statute applies both to uh, voice calls to cell phones and also to text messaging because text messaging uses the, uh, uses telephone technology. Um, and the Supreme Court has in front of it a petition by Facebook in a case called Facebook versus Do Good. And uh, by the time this uh, podcast is distributed, the Supreme Court may tell us whether they're gonna take up the ATVS definition or not. Uh, but even if the Supreme Court doesn't take action, the Federal Communications Commission is currently looking at the issue uh, to see what sort of ground rules can be provided in terms of use of robocall technology, what's permissible, what's not permissible, um, what falls within the definition of an auto dialer and what what doesn't. Um, so there is a uh, there's a recent ruling the FCC issued on June 25th, where the FCC simply stated that the fact that a calling platform is used to make calls or send text to a large volume of numbers is not probative of whether the equipment constitutes an auto dialer, but they have not yet completed their rulemaking as to uh, what technology is subject to the act. Yeah. So it remains to be seen whether um, there will be some action from the FCC to provide some relief to business in this area. Yeah, this is a moving target. And I, I want to say that this uh, recording is being done on July 9th, uh, 2020. Uh, if you are listening to it uh, after July 9th, 2020, uh, the, the Facebook uh, case uh, that Stephen mentioned, its number in the Supreme Court is 19-511. You may see news stories on whether the cert petition has been granted. If you wish to check by simply searching for 19-511 on SCOTUS blog, for example. Stephen, thank you for bringing our attention to the Facebook case. It turns out, and this is the wonder of constantly checking online, while we've been recording this podcast, 
the Supreme Court has granted certiorari in Facebook versus Google, in the in the Facebook case. Uh, again, it's number nineteen five eleven. The order just came down uh, today, uh, and so, as, as we recorded the podcast, so that is a case to now be followed closely. It will deal with all the issues uh, that 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 you've discussed, and how important do you think this case will then be, Stephen? As we've been talking about it, in terms of what the court will decide, it's critically important to the business community because there are many, many different types of calling technologies that have been developed since the TCPA was first passed. There's been a lot of disagreement among the lower courts as to what's permissible and what's not permissible, uh, what constitutes automatic dialing technology and what doesn't. There's a a tremendous uh, disagreement among the courts as to how to analyze the question, both in terms of what the technology itself is permitted to do as well as what constitutes capacity to dial. Um, Because so much of technology these days is software driven, where the same physical machine can do lots of different things depending on how it's programmed. And so the question is, um, you know, to what degree do software changes or potential software changes uh, make it, uh, you know, make it, uh, subject to regulation under the act. And uh, we can see a lot of interest uh, in the business community and the outcome here. And in fact, in terms of the practical outcome, I mean, the bar case that we discussed has enormous doctrinal outcomes. No one thought that in that case, or very few people thought in that case, Telephone Consumer Protection Act would be held unconstitutional. So the finding, the judgment was not surprising. The doctrinal issues uh, added a great deal to think about. But in terms of its practical effect on the business community, if you said uh, this Facebook case is going to have a huge practical impact on how business uh, works. Yes. And also, there are a lot of difficult issues of statutory interpretation here in terms of how do you read a statute. And we did see that in the Bostec case, where Congress passes a law using language that's understood at the time, and then the world changes. The technologies being used today, many of them did not exist when the TCPA was first enacted. So the question is, how do you use the words uh, in the statute to apply to today's issues? Like, for example, you know, what does it mean to call at that random or call in sequential order? Um, there's a question as to what it means to store uh, information. And just the way that uh, telephone technology works today, it's so much different than it was 25 years ago or even five years ago that um, it's hard for judges to get it. What was the goal Congress was trying to accomplish? Uh, And, uh, you know, is in looking at the statute, do you look at the desire to protect privacy broadly writ? And in that way, you can um, overlook some of the technicalities of grammar uh, and whatnot um, to accomplish that goal, or when you're talking about imposing uh, broad liability on the business community, um, you know, do you take a more strict reading of the exact language in the statute, um, you know, knowing that uh, business might be reliant on the specific wording in terms of planning their activities? Yeah. 
That's wonderful. I, I want you to know we'll look forward to that argument. And if it is significant as it seems that it will be, uh, and if you are available and willing to do it, we will ask you back again uh, to follow this discussion, to talk about the Facebook case as we have talked about the Barr case. And we look forward to doing that. And if you would like MCLA credit for listening to this podcast, all you need to do is go to dailyjournal.com. You'll see the link to the MCLE test. You take it electronically, send it in, and you may receive one hour MCLE credit. In addition, if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, uh, you will be able to do the same thing, but also you will have access to a literal treasure trove of information and articles, uh, other materials put together uh, by Stephen and others on these issues, and a way to clearly follow these issues. If you'd like to read the opinion in the Barr case, so you can see how this was developed. I think the easiest way for you to find it is on SCOTUS blog, the website SCOTUS blog. And again, you just type in its, its number. And the number of Supreme Court number is 19-631. And you'll get the full opinion on SCOTUS blog at this point, I think. It's the easiest way to find it. Or if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you can find it in the Daily Journal appellate report at 2020 DJ DAR 6902, 2020 DJ DAR 6902, so that you can read the entire opinion, as well as catch up and learn more about this area of law. Stephen, we're indebted to you for joining us. Thank you. This is an area of great complexity. You've helped us all understand that we're very grateful for your time. And we thank you for being with us on this Daily Journal podcast.